This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to the Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Kaur. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Inspiration Project podcast. Absolutely delighted to have Mr. Roger Corbett with us this morning. Mr. Corbett, thank you for your time. You have an illustrious career, as I see it mapped out before me on uh, on some of your bio. Started uh, maybe more decades ago than you might call um, choose to remember in, in what were some circumstances that we'll investigate, but uh, towards the, the bulk of your career has been spent in the management of some very large companies, some of the most well-known and most um, people would say powerful companies that we might be able to to recognise in our society. I worked with uh, Grace Brothers originally, Woolworths, Fairfax Media, um, on the board of the Reserve Bank of Australia, Walmart, which is a global enterprise, and a number of other very significant business opportunities uh, Worked on behalf of society in uh, the boards of the children's hospitals of Westmead and Randwick and has been part of the leadership of the Salvation Army movement in Australia. Um, We really thank you for your time and uh, appreciate the experience that we believe uh, you've accrued over the period of of that endeavour. Can you tell us about how how it started for you 50-odd years ago? What was it that that launched you into a career that has taken you to so many different boardrooms? Well, um, 77 years ago, I was born into a, uh, a hospital in uh, Cremorne, Sydney. So my mother, Yolan Corbett, the first son, uh, I had two younger brothers uh, and I was brought up in Cremorne and uh, Seaforth and then Mossman and uh, had a wonderful, happy childhood with my parents giving me and my brother wonderful education, and uh, I was blessed with a very, very happy home life. That sounds fantastic. So, eldest son, do you do you think that being first cab off the rank with the family, number one son, has that changed or given you a certain perspective that you think coming in a different place of the family may not have afforded you? Well, um, I, they reckon that, uh, you know, the older son has certain challenges. The, uh, the younger son uh, uh, battles to get attention and the middle son is left in the middle. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I suppose it depends on your point of view. Um, but I was the older son and uh, my father um, did face some significant business problems during that period of time uh, that he shared with me as his elder son, I was quite close to him, and that did have quite an impact uh, upon my um, uh, sense of um, security and earnestness, I think you might say, mm. growing up. Mm. Um, uh, uh, so that was an impact. My parents were people of faith, uh, and I um, made my commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ very early in my life. Um, kneeling uh, beside, nearly with my father, beside um, the bed, 
in his room and um, we prayed together. That was an icon point in my life. And even though I think I was six or seven, might have been eight, something in that order at the time, uh, that was the starting point of my walk mm. uh, with Jesus. And I always look as that, that being the datum point and the starting point in that mm. journey that has been so important to me and brought such a blessing to me uh, in every aspect of my life. So after 70 years of that journey, the the reality of it is just as true? True. That's fantastic. Much true. That is fantastic. You mentioned you had a, you did a, you had a very happy childhood. What were the things that brought happiness to you in, at that stage of your life? Well, I had uh, a wonderful mother. Um, my father worked hard. Uh, he was a loving, very loving father. Uh, but my mother made a wonderful home. Uh, she was uh, a consummate mother, I'd have to say. She ran a wonderful home, was a wonderful cook, a caring woman, mm-hmm. and, and finally died, uh, I think, a victorious life at 99 wow. and nine months. Oh, my goodness. That is amazing. Well, that bodes well um, for the next 20 years or so uh, for, for you, I guess. Well, I hope so. I hope so. Genes are important, but... She walked, worked in our family business into well into her 90s, maybe 94 or 95, and she delivered meals on wheels uh, probably until she was 96. Wow. So she used to deliver meals on wheels around Redfern, yep. and she'd go in a taxi, and she'd take the meals up to the people. A lot of them were, you know, a decade or so younger than she was. Mm. So, Mr. Corbett, you would have been growing up in in post-war Australia, post-Second World War Australia. What what was the opportunities that were available for a a young fellow with uh, keen intent and enthusiasm that uh, opened up for you at that that stage? Well, um, as I said, I was brought up in Seaforce. I used to walk across the Spit Bridge and catch the tram up to school. Um, and uh, I had, I, well, I, I, my parents weren't overly wealthy, but at this stage of their life, they were comfortably off. Um, and uh, I lived a, a very, very happy family life. I suppose the icon experience with, for me was in 1949. I uh, was, uh, it reminds me of the current. Well, the current uh, COVID-19 reminds me it was a terrible polio epidemic across yeah. Australia at yeah. that stage, which kills lots of people and lots of my peers that got it, um, you know, never walked again or yes. whatever the case may be, or in fact died. And um, I, as a boy of seven, um, six, seven, contracted polio and was taken to the then Infectious Diseases Hospital of the polio, which is the Incendiary Hospital way out of Little Bay. Right. And uh, that was a very emotional time for me as a kid growing up. Can, can well imagine. I spent a long time out there, and we, as most families only did, had one car. Mm. My father worked in, 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 the, uh, in the day. Uh, most weekends my family would come and see me, but some weekends they couldn't. And uh, uh, my mum used to sometimes come on the tram all, all the way from Seaforth um, 
to visit me, but she couldn't come because she had two little boys to look after yeah. as well. Yeah. So they were th- that was a quite a, um, a challenging time. Uh, I think the interesting thing was, by all accounts, I should have never walked again. Right. Um, but um, uh, in the church that we went to, uh, there was a group um, formed to pray for me and my recovery, and uh, here I am. I subsequently played football and I rode and I jogged and I've lived an absolutely normal life. And I think that was um, a very pertinent, private and meaningful, um, to me, answer to prayer that I've been thankful for. Even though you were were a young fellow, were you you conscious of the prayers of the people of God for you? Were you... Yes, I was. And in fact, in the Prince Henry Hospital, um, in the turn of the century, there was a very good jewellery business, wholesale jewellery business in Sydney, in York Street, Sydney, when wholesalers were a very important part of the distribution chain of uh, particularly jewellery. It was called H.H. Halls. Mm. And uh, the founder of that used to, on a Sunday night, travel by horse and cart out to Prince Henry Hospital. And every Sunday night, he would conduct, with a number of other people, Mm. a church service in each of the wards. Mm. And his son was a fellow called Harry Halls, and he happened to be a very good friend of my father's. And I knew about this, you know, vaguely as a kid, but then as I sat in the hospital and Sunday by Sunday, he um, brought that service to the, uh, and what they simply used, they might have had a dozen people and they'd sing a few very well-known hymns and uh, then they'd move on to the next ward and one of them would stay behind and give a short talk in each of the wards. Mm. Um, that had an enormous impact to me on me in, in, what, in what way, Mr. Corbett? What, what impact? Well, it was a little bit of church mm. coming to me in what was, I was in a male adult ward. There were no really? children's really? wards. And so these adults were men who, many of them were suffering, you know, people were in iron lungs and uh, um, the process of, recuperation because, as you know, polio polio is a virus that affects you for about a week, but it attacks um, your your muscles. Right. Uh, And so I had no no strength in my arms and legs at all for quite a period of time afterwards. And uh, lots of people in that ward were suffering. Uh, I didn't understand what bad language was, (laughs) um, uh, but I learnt it. Uh, from listening to the men around me, <laughs> which was a story in itself when I got home. My parents had to try to wean me off it, um, very much to the shock of the neighbours. Uh, but but that, that church service on Sunday, yes, meant a lot to me, even as a little boy at that age. Yeah. But the interesting thing was, um, I suppose 20 or maybe 30 years, 20 years later, I had the opportunity of doing that myself. Really? And I formed a team um, with my friends, and we went out there for many years, maybe 10 or 15 years, 
on the fourth Sunday of every month. And we went around the wards conducting those services that I'd oh, enjoyed fantastic. myself as a kid all those years previously. That is really awesome. So this is a, a, a really uh, challenging phase for a young person to be to be experiencing. But I'll tell you a, a little a personal story that I think is worth um, uh, telling. Uh, we lived uh, in a street called Battle Boulevard, was just over the Spit Bridge. The road used to wind to the left and go up the high escarpment of the harbour, Middle Harbour. And uh, when I was diagnosed, um, uh, the doctor said, go home. And uh, my mum said, you go to bed. And uh, it wasn't long and an ambulance mm. came up our drive. Uh, and remember, this was highly infectious. Mm. People were dying. It was every bit um, uh, as dangerous as the current COVID virus, probably more so. Mm because there was no confinement and it was spreading like wildfire. And there were lots and lots of people dying and lots and lots of people being infected. And, um, you know, one of my friend's brother got it. Uh, his father caught it from his brother and he was dead within three or four days. Goodness me. So the ambulance pulled up outside our house. And I had two younger brothers. They were probably... Uh, uh, five or six and three, and uh, a lady further down the road came down and said to my mother, what's happening? Mm. And she said, Roger has got polio. And she said, what's happening to the young, and we're taking him to hospital. And she said, what's happening to the two young Richard and Peter? And my mother said, well, they've got to come with us. Mm. there's nothing else we can do. She said, no, they don't. Mm. They're coming into our house. Mm. That woman was a mm. very fine Christian woman. Mm. But talk about an act of love. Yes. But she took those two kids in, my two brothers, and uh, endangered herself and her family yeah. in a caring spirit. What a wonderful act of love. Indeed. Indeed. So very early you had this this impression that faith was not just theoretical. It it changed the way you interacted with people. It does indeed. Yeah, it seems that some of these early experiences have left a lasting impression. Can I ask you, uh, Mr. Corbett, you, facing something as harrowing as that, that period, that diagnosis and period of recovery, it could it could lead you to a, a tremendous sense of, of personal resilience, that, that internal fortitude and capacity to bounce back that could propel you into a life of, of um, being self-sustaining. It seems as though rather than that, you've had an awareness of God's grace as being part of your life. What would you think it was that prevented you from feeling this, this, uh, this human strength as opposed to God's companionship in your life? Well, um, I think it's possible, you know, I don't think they're alternatives. Yeah, good. I think I think they can be two forces that can equally exist in your life. Good. So did it make it, did it make it me resilient? Yes, it did. Mm. Um, uh, I, I 
think I had some limitations in my sporting prowess, maybe from natural lack of talent as well, I acknowledge, but certainly in part affected by um, one leg slightly shorter than the other, one foot slightly shorter than the other, a couple of sizes in the shoe. So it just did affect a little bit. Um, but I suppose, uh, you know, that type of drive and uh, so on came a bit from that. But I, I, I think um, the greatest realisation is that you're in God's hands and uh, certainly affected me um, out, out of this. You know, I, uh, looking back, I had a type of comfort and a peace, which really, to a large degree, was a reflection of my parents' mm. faith and dependence on God too. Yeah. Yeah, so you had good people around you and and, and a personal relationship very early that allowed you to make sense of this. Um, you, you mentioned mm. the fact that it, it left some some um, impact physically that you've you've carried through mm. life. Have you felt the the weight of that? Is that has that been problematic as you've moved into different spheres and different avenues of of uh, work and service? And um, uh, really, I've had a I'm naturally I think my mother had wonderful genes, and uh, I've fortunately inherited those. Um, but there is such a thing as this um, polyomyelitis type of uh, um, thing that does occur later in life. And yes, in the last few years, um, I tend to have a lazy right leg that I sometimes trip over. And uh, when I tripped at the top of the balcony of our home and disappeared over the balcony, I said to myself, this is not going to end well. And it didn't. (laughs) So I've had a few, I had a few falls and I've just got to be careful about that. But that's the least of my worries, you know. What what about other people's reactions? Has, Has it changed the way people have thought about you or perceived you and until they've gotten to know you? No, I don't think it has, no. Yeah, that's marvellous. So you uh, you go through school, happy childhood, you find yourself unloading trucks. Um, well, I, I did a um, commerce degree at the University of New South Wales, some of it full-time, some of it part-time. And uh, during uh, going through that, I decided to myself that I would write to a number of companies and offer my services um, during university holidays. Mm. Um, so when I finally graduated, I'd had the benefit of you know, academic learning and theory and some practical experience in their companies. And um, Grace Brothers uh, wrote back and, um, uh, in fact, I have to tell you, they're the only ones who wrote back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I um, went for my interview, uh, they said, um, why have you chosen us? Well, I, 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 I suppose there's a lie and there's not telling the full truth. <laughs> I didn't tell them there were only people replied. Um, but anyway, I, I was appointed to the Chatswood store uh, and my first job was unloading trucks and I did that for quite some time and it had two very, very big impacts on me. The first impact was... I didn't want to do this for the rest of my life, and that was a very strong impact um, because it consisted of moving food pallets. And uh, in those days, uh, the pallets weren't motorised, so you had to pump them up, yeah. and then you had to pull them. And they could have been 
you know, maybe one and a half metres. Some of them might have even been almost two metres high and are very heavy. And to get them going was a big, big pull. And to stop them was an equal pull. (laughs) And you... Uh, and after you've done this for eight hours, I tell you, it, you, you it, sleep well at night. To, huh? You sure did. But the second thing was, in those menial tasks, I learned a, an enormous respect for the people that do those tasks all their lives. Mm. Mm. And, uh, and so I developed a, uh, an empathy, I mm. think, with people in those jobs which helped me so much in the rest of my life mm. because as uh, as the chief executive of Woolworths or when I was director of operations at, um, uh, at uh, Grace Brothers and at uh, David Jones later, I always felt great empathy with the people in the stores doing what were really in many cases tough, mm. sometimes boring jobs and uh, they weren't, didn't have the upward opportunities that I had. Mm. And most of those people have done those jobs all their lives. Mm. And the great feeling of um, sharing with them and an empathy that I understood aspects of their job and both respected them mm. and understood that they weren't type of workers. They were people just like me. Yes. And I was just like them, was I think one of the greatest learnings of my life. And uh, it paid subsequently wonderful dividends, not only in um, enabling me to be, I hope, an effective leader of them, but also building a wonderful relationship of mutual respect. Yes. And I think by chance, one of the key aspect of being a successful manager was learned right there mm. uh, all those years ago working with those people. And then mm. I subsequently, you know, worked my way all the way up and did different types of jobs. And so I had an understanding and a respect for those people, which uh, I retain today. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you mentioned the term um, paying dividends. That's a nice segue into latter half of your career, which has been about governance of large companies. Is there a difference between working in a company and governing the company, being on the, the, the board? Well, you know, the purest sense of governance is the type of processes and rules and laws that relate to directors and um, managing directors and chief executives in regard to their shareholders. Mm. And uh, that process is a a really important, an unbelievably important process in effective commercial activity and um, delivering uh, for the shareholders what they expect from their investment in that company. Mm. Um, Then a little bit separate to that, but it's still a governance issue, is if you like the management execution Mm. on a day-to-day basis in running the business. And that more has to do with their relationship with the people Mm. because they're leading a team of people. In the case of Woolworths, you know, about a quarter of a million people. Um, In the case of, um, say, Walmart America, two and a half million people. Mm. Um, And you're leading that through an army of lieutenants and sub-lieutenants and all the way down the rank. 
the culture that the chief executive um, leads and has an impact upon this company on a company is immensely important. And that's where I think Christian principles have been immensely helpful to me in a practical sense of running the business. For example, I think the key Christian injunction of doing doing unto others Mm. as you'd have them do unto you Mm. or treat other people as you would like to be treated yourself is, I think, one of the foremost management principles of all time. Yeah. Started by Jesus. Yes. So in practical terms, what is that? You're leading two and a half million people as the chairman of the board of Walmart. How does that principle carry out or affect the way you, you the decisions that you're making at any particular well, quarter? Well, I wasn't... I need to correct that. I wasn't a president of Walmart. I was a director sure. of Walmart, sure. and I wasn't part of the management. Uh, the management of that, uh, more recently, has been run by a wonderful Australian museum fellow called Greg Ferran, who has done a wonderful job. So as a director, it would affect you in terms of um, being very sensitive uh, to listening to the issues of how the managing director was going about the job of executing and leading the business. So you'd mm. be terribly interested in that. I, um, You'd be terribly interested in the human resources policies and procedures about how people were treated. Mm. Remuneration, fair remuneration, um, uh, separation, how you treated people in separation, mm. um, this whole concept of concerning people. Mm. As the chief executive... Um, the biggest task you have in running a big business is leading the people. Mm. That's what management is all about. And the influence that you have on your team uh, and how you go about that is enormously, uh, it has, has an enormous type of practical impact on the expectations of security, the comfort and the health of the people right down the organisation. Mm. So uh, when I was a store manager of Grace Brothers, and I might have had a store with a 1,000 people in it, I spent a lot of my time wandering around the store, mm. talking to any, everyone, mm. everyone in the store. I type of would have known just about everyone in that store. Mm. Personally. When I ran Woolies, and I had 250,000 people, and I used to spend a lot of my time wandering around the stores. I did that for two reasons. Well, maybe three. One, I liked it. <laughs> uh, and two, it gave me access to the people. And by walking around the store, I had a great feeling of what the morale was. And, you know, the empathy was people in all, all walks of the store. And I think they got to know me and they like doing that. And I sure like getting to know them. Yeah. Um, and uh, the endeavour of those people were enormous. And the third reason was that I could see firsthand what our customers were getting. Yeah. And as we were there to serve the customers, there's no better way of um, of knowing that than looking and 
but the merchandise, its quality, the freshness of the yeah. produce, the quality and freshness of the meat. The only way you can find that out is looking at it yourself, mm. uh, particularly if you've got some expertise in that idea area of looking, you know, you know what you're looking for. Mm. So uh, I used to very much enjoy that. And out of all the thousands of stores I've been into my, in my life, I think I can honestly say I've never been in one store that I didn't learn something mm. uh, that was significant and of importance that I would have never, ever mm. found out sitting in my office. Yeah. So earlier in our conversation, you, you spoke about the priority of the culture of an organisation, a company, a business. Is what you're describing about getting out, prioritising people, having conversations, is that an important part of what you think is a, a, a culture that needs to pervade any any commercial enterprise? Oh, yes. Um, you know, if you're leading a team, it's not what you say that counts, it's what you do. Mm. Yeah, so hearing and, it. Uh, so, well, seeing it, hearing it, people meeting you, um, and uh, so my farewell dinner was about, um, it was our company conference. We have about 7,000 people sat down to dinner, one of the biggest dinners in Sydney. And uh, as I spoke uh, on the final occasion and the empathy and relationship that I had with those people was uh, just a, a precious personal experience for me. Mm. And they really, um, um, uh, it was a mutual thing. Mm. You know, I cared deeply for them and uh, I think most of them cared about me too. Mm. So there was, this, there was this relationship and it goes, it fundamentally goes to the question of relationships with people. Mm. And the two important things are this, this wonderful concept in Christianity of love, mm. but also of integrity. Yes. And so people need to not only know you as a person and know that the company cares yes. for them. Yes. And and they also need to know that if you tell them something, it's the truth. Yes. So if I'm working for someone and he tells me or she tells me a lie, mm. I might tell them there are they're a liar, but if I know it's a lie, I, of course, will never trust them again. Yes. And so this question of relationships, so on our badges, we used to have, we care. Yes. And my badge said, Roger, we care. <laughs> and everyone else's badge said, Bill, John, Mary, we care. And so this concept of caring, you might say the opposite of caring is cynicism. Mm. Yeah. People who don't care, there's always an angle, there's some twist, mm, mm. cynicism. So cynicism in society is, in my view, a terrible cancer. Mm. Its antidote is love. Mm. And so this question of having people that really care, mm. they, they care about the customer if the company cares about them. Yeah. Um, the, the customer cares about them if they really know the person cares about the customer. And mm. if you get that 
concept. You can't expect people to care for the company if the company doesn't care for them. Yeah. And uh, so I was terribly anxious that we were never in a position where I had to retrench people. Yeah. We were there to give people jobs. Yeah. And I was very careful that we didn't overshoot the mark with people and need to retrench people. Yes. Um, though I accept in a casual staff is a movement up and down because that's a variable factor yeah, in a business. Um, but, uh, you know, permanent people or people that had been casual for a long time and were dependent, uh, then we needed to have a company that was run so people could rely on the fact that they had a secure job and if they did their job well, as we expected everyone to do their job well, as I hopefully did my job well, well then that was the type of environment that... Um, yeah. Yeah, so that harkens back. You mentioned the Christian principle of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the, the Christian golden rule. You, you're describing that in a, in, as a business strategy. You say, I want the person to care for our business, so my business needs to care for them, whether they're an employer or a client or a supplier or whatever might be the relationship. I'll tell you a little, couple of little stories, um, if I might. Um, so I got this from a fellow called Sam Walton, who was a founder of Walmart, which is now the biggest company yeah. in the world. Yeah. And as you know, he started his business with a shop, a little shop in uh, Arkansas. And uh, after the war, and he, he built it up. But he had, when the business got very big, he used to often use the PA, the store PA, to thank his, mm-hmm. thank his staff. Mm-hmm. But when I was running Woolies, I thought that was a really good idea. So if the store was good, I wouldn't do it if the store wasn't good. But if the store was good, I'd get on the PA up at the front near the checkouts and I'd say uh, to the customer, I'd say, ladies and gentlemen, I wonder if you'd just excuse me for a minute. It's Roger Corbett. And I'm just visiting the store here and I want to say how proud I am of the team. Um, this store is just colossal. I don't know how you do it. I then use a little hyperbole and talk about the specials in the store. Didn't know how they got that wonderful value on um, on bananas and uh, boy, that and those tomatoes were something else, you know, something like that. And I'd praise them. But the customers used to love it as well. And of course, the, st- the store used to uh, to, to, to love yeah, it as well. Awesome. So, yeah. So that was a um, just a little example of how that worked its way out. And and I, I like the way the fact that uh, it wasn't false. It, if it was deserved recognition. Well, it, it was so well deserved that, and I'd only do it. Yeah. And I could, you know, I'd walk out of the store and it wasn't good, and I wouldn't do it. And the look of disappointment yes. on the manager. Some I've had occasions when managers have actually broken down in tears. And uh, I'd say, look, I can't say it today, Bill, because you know the store's not right. Yeah. But I'll be back in a week or so's time, and I hope I can say it then. Yeah, good. Um, you've got you've got no idea what a, a motivating yeah. factor that was, but it was pretty precious as well because. Um, you know, I've been in stores at nine or ten o'clock on Christmas Eve, when the people, many of the people in the store, would have been there from five o'clock in the morning. Mm. And I made it my business to be in stores when no one else wanted to be in stores, yeah. like Christmas Eve, because I remember when I 
was working in a store. Did I want to work on Christmas Eve? Did I want to work on Sunday? Yeah. The answer was no. Yeah. Um, and uh, I want to work on Saturday afternoon when my kids were playing sport. Yeah. No. So as chief executive, I made it my mark to be in stores mm. on those occasions to recognize the people. Mm. And uh, you've got no idea the emotion when people have worked in some of these stores immensely, mm. immensely hard for long, long hours. Mm. And it's just about to close on Christmas Eve and you have the opportunity to go on the PA mm. and say what a superb job you've done today and you've made Christmas for thousands and thousands of people. Thank you so much for your efforts. They are so greatly appreciated. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, and, 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 you know, the, the, these to me are uh, the living and caring yes. aspects of Christianity. Yeah, that's good. Mr. Corbett, you, you spoke earlier in our conversation about being able to uh, throw some light on areas that you had some knowledge about or some, some insight about. Um, clearly, you know retail backwards and forwards. It's, it's been something that you have become extremely expert in. But your career has also taken you into some diverse fields, into media, into health. Uh, are you able to carry the same principles of leadership and and uh, management into those different spaces, or is it a whole new ball game? Uh, well, that's a really interesting question, if I might say so. Well, my happy happiest experiences um, were it when uh, you know I was walking around stores and I knew the business intimately, mm. and there was every job and the place I'd type had done at one stage or other of different types. Mm. And, you know, I was walking around the store and I would feel the manager's shoulder mm-hmm. slightly <laughs> ease me in a direction which I, I recognised immediately because I'd done it myself, you know. <laughs> Clearly something was not that good somewhere or another. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, I, I have to say they were the happiest times when you've got an involvement um, with uh, uh, people that you're immediately relating to and you know. It's much harder when you're actually running a business where you don't know in the same interval. So I'm chairman of pharmaceutical business, a very, very complex pharmaceutical business, um, and I don't understand the science behind that. equally uh, running uh, a business like Fairfax during the digital revolution mm. where turnovers have dropped in compound 15% a year has its own uh, has its own challenges. Um, but those roles are more governance. Mm. They're more standing back, looking at the broad trends, of the broad pictures, a strategy, uh, and, and indeed uh, some of the execution in the broadest sense. You don't have the intimacy of involvement with the people on an everyday basis that you have with the chief executive. Mm. And indeed, you've got to be careful that you don't cross the line Mm. between executive responsibility and board responsibility. Mm -hmm. That's a very important part of governance. The managing director or chief executive has got to lead the business. Mm. In fact, he's got to be report to and be accountable to the board. That's how the governance process works 
if you get too much involved, one, you compromise both his leadership mm. and, of course, your ability to be able to hold him responsible mm. or her. Mm. Can you? Do you have the same level of enjoyment and satisfaction? You, you are describing a, a slightly at an arm's length relationship to the business when you are in a position of the, a director or, or chair of the board. Does it carry the same satisfaction? When, when the company succeeds? Well, uh, I'm a hands-on type guy and uh, I come up through the ranks over 40 years before I really became a chief executive. And so um, my comfort zone is to be involved in a hands-on, in-the-store mm. sense. Mm. Um, so it's not a, you know, I'm happiest there, but it's not a preference. They're different roles. Mm. However, there's a quite an interesting, uh, 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 difference here is if you're a director, a director is you arrive at a meeting, you carry the responsibility. You can make, uh, you know, during the course of the director's meeting of a few hours, maybe, four or five comments. Mm. If no one acknowledges them and nothing happens, they probably disappear in the ether. Yeah. Um, if you talk too much, well, then they say that old Corbett, he dominates, he can't keep him quiet, or he knows everything or something of that nature. So there's this business of board equilibrium and uh, colleagueship and relationship, which is necessary in a sense, but it's also very limited. So I found being just a director not all that satisfying. Yeah. Um, because and and you, unless someone says, "Gee, that's a good idea," and does something about it, as I said, it disappears into the ether. Yeah, yeah. I, I found it much more satisfying, to be honest, to be a chairman. Yeah. Because there you can make sure comments by directors don't go into the ether. Yeah, yeah. So if someone says something that is of significance, well, that's a good idea. Now, we don't let that go. Let's put that into the matters arising from the meeting. Um, whoever the managing director is, he or she, um, Bill or Mary, would you make sure we have a look at that and please come to next meeting and tell us what you're going to do about it. Yeah, yeah. So you're able in that role uh, to take a board and I think make it far more effective and the roles in it far more effective. If you're serving on a board, if you've got a chairman who doesn't do that, uh, then it can be a little less satisfying. So in preference, I love being a managing director and rubbing the business. Um, being a chairman as I'm now um, of three companies, uh, one very small, but just companies, I'm able to have some influence over making sure that board works more effectively, so it's a leadership role. My least um, inclination is just to be a member of a board. Sure. That, that's a, a good segue to the last thing I want to ask you about. You, your career profile clearly maps that you, you've assumed leadership in every organisation that you've, you've been part of, whether that's appointed to that or rising through the ranks to assume that. What do you think is a good leader? Well, I, I'll just, I think your assumption is wrong. Um, there have been two occasions in my job, my life. One 
most occasions I had been promised the top job and on the first occasion I not only didn't get the top job, I found myself out of a job altogether. Mm. And the second occasion I was promised a job and when the due time came up, um, circumstances in some people's eyes had changed and uh, they didn't want to move on. And uh, so I didn't get the job. Mm. I won't go into all the details, but these were two crisis points. Yes. And uh, so it wasn't a matter of assuming leadership. Um, when you're a chief executive, you've actually got to be given the job. You can't type of demand the job and the board of directors or your superiors, the person that determines that. So it's out of your hands to determine. And they were two crises points. You know, I, on the first occasion, 45, I thought I was going to be managing director of this company and the company was taken over by another company and in a matter of months, I had no job. Mm. So the good part about this is the commander-in-chief is not the chairman Amen. of the companies, it's not the managing directors, it's not the board, it's God. Amen. And, and I'm in God's hands. So even though these were terrible experiences, yes. um, God worked it out for me. Yes. And uh, if I hadn't have had the first experience, I would never have had the opportunity and the great honour of running one of Australia's greatest companies, Woolies, mm. uh, at a great time for Woolies. It was just a great blessing. And that wasn't in anyone's hands yes. but God's. Yes. And he, I've got to say, thank you, God. You've done a very nice job by me and I'm very grateful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a great, uh, a great way to finish our conversation, Mr. Corbett. Um, you have given great service to the business community. You've given great service to the companies that, that you've led and continue to lead. And it's a wonderful thing that in the, the stages that you are, you can still see the hand of God guiding you through those challenges and disappointments and bringing opportunity for you to do the best in his name and his work for the people that you want to care for through the leadership you provide. Thank you for your time with us. Um, we are grateful for it and pray God's blessing upon you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the interview. Thank you. 